Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. My name is Rob Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we got a firecracker for you. We're going to be talking about Message from Space. I uh, So I suggested doing this on the show after... I think it was like a week or two ago. There was one night where I was cooking and we just wanted to put on a, a movie on mute and we were looking around for various space operas and this option came up, this 1978 Japanese space opera movie uh, that looked kind of interesting. So we set it going and it was just a, a, a powerful and beautiful assault on the eyes of disco colors, variety show atmosphere and 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 powerful adventures in space. And I was so excited to go back and actually watch it. And it did not disappoint. Yeah, it's a perfect selection for Weird House Cinema. Now, uh, some of you might be asking, what is Weird House Cinema? Maybe you've seen it popping up in the feed of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a science and culture podcast. Well, it is a, a late Friday night celebration of weird films and maybe a dash of science and culture as well. You can think of these episodes as the mysterious space nuts cast off into a science and culture podcast feed as a call to adventure for weird film fans. Okay, so let's start with the elevator pitch on Message from Space. What's the deal with this movie? Okay, is a 1978 a Japanese space opera falling uh, hot on the heels of 1977 Star Wars. And basically, th this is the plot. In the Andromeda galaxy, the peaceful planet of uh, Jelusia has been conquered by the warrior Gavanas Empire, who then turned the planet uh, into a weapon, like turn it into a spaceship. Uh, the Jelusians are peaceful, but they need some help. So what do they do? They cast out eight space nuts. Uh, the, what are they? Liabe seeds <laughs> yeah. to call forth the warriors who will save them and ultimately save the earth as well. There is so much examining of nuts in this movie. <laughs> People just holding nuts up to the light and talking about their nuts. Yeah. And they, the, and it's important to note that these nuts glow. Mm -hmm. And uh, with with magic, these nuts also just randomly appear. You might be about to eat a tomato and, whoa, there's suddenly a space nut in there. You're Oops. drinking your eighth bourbon of the day and, whoa, <laughs> suddenly there's a there's a space nut in there. Um, yeah. So I think we should start with the obvious thing, which is that this is a ripoff of Star Wars. This came out in 1978, but it, but it's more than a ripoff of Star Wars. It's also a very zesty expression of uh, sets and costumes and disco love, and it, it has a, a fabulous energy to it, but it is a ripoff of Star Wars, like so many other films in the late 70s after Star Wars came out. You've got uh, Star Crash, one of my favorites. Uh, there, there, there were a lot of different uh, Star Wars clones created in different countries around the world. There's famously Turkish Star Wars. Uh, mm. I know there are some others. Battlestar Galactica can kind of be thrown into this general category. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it, it is important to compare it to these other films. Because, for instance, Turkish Star Wars is a, is a ridiculous film that actually takes footage from Star Wars mm -hmm. and uses it. Uh, in the film. So there's like that level of ripping off Star Wars. There's Star Crash, which Star Crash is a lot of fun. Uh, this one, uh, well, let's see, it had David, ha David Hasselhoff, Christopher Plummer, mm -hmm. uh, Caroline Monroe uh, in it. But it it's entertaining, but it also just feels 
kind of shoddy the whole way through. It feels very much like a ripoff. You know what I mean? Yeah, the the script feels very much like a first draft. There's a great scene where it, the movie has Marjo Gortner in it, who is an actor with a unbelievably weird life story. He was like a child tent revival preacher uh, when mm-hmm. he was, I don't know, seven years old or something. And then he dropped out. I think he went into the, the, the hippie movement and, and tried to emerge and to have an acting career. So he's in this movie as uh, I don't know as a space hero who's got like a like a ring that blasts people with with lasers and there's a great scene where he's fighting a bad guy and he says these deadly rays will be your death. <laughs> yeah, it's a uh, it, it's it, it's a fun film in and of itself, but I I feel like it is important to sort of pi- to, to 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 pinpoint Turkish Star Wars and Star Crash. And then talk about Message from Space, because Message from Space, again, very much uh, trying to cash in on the Star Wars craze. But it is it is weird enough in its own right. And it is it is different enough in just enough ways to where it it does feel uh, like a a self-contained weird universe. I mean, there are times in the film where it does come just a little a little too close to Star Wars and uh, you can't help but um, but snicker at it. But there's plenty (laughs) of just other just crazy stuff in this film. Well, I mean, it definitely gets close when you're getting into the character names, such as Sonny Mm -hmm. Chiba playing Prince Hans and uh I can't remember the actress's name at the moment, but uh, you have Princess Maya in the movie, and it—I mean—you can see where they're going. Yeah, there's also a uh, there's a particular musical um, uh, number that keeps uh, keeps playing in the film that is yes, like as yes. close as possible to John Williams' Star Wars as you could get. Uh, maybe too close. I don't know. It, it, it feels oh. just way too close. No, no, no. The very opening of this movie uh, of Message from Space begins with the Princess Leia theme from Star Wars. I mean, it's not mm-hmm. exactly, but like the first five or six notes of the melody are identical, and then after that, it's still pretty similar but there are little variations uh so you remember the princess leia the theme it plays you know oh yeah and and -hmm. that just comes again and again throughout the movie you have what are obviously stormtroopers in this movie but they're kind of metal instead of white uh, right. Well, well, but I will say the stormtroopers look really awesome in this. They do. They seem to have two varieties. You have these the sort of uh, you've referred to them as like crab hat um, troopers. And they look really cool because they have this kind of space samurai motif. And granted, in samurai motif is part of the armor motif in Star Wars itself. But mm-hmm. here it is, it is created by by uh, you know Japanese costume crews, and it it seems to take on its own kind of uh, uh, you know f- uh, futuristic air. And then there are also these, I think, far more terrifying uh, stormtroopers that tend to be in the background behind those guys with these heavy gas masks on. Oh yeah, and and they they look they look really cool. Like I was seeing though, they have like a real death trooper vibe to them. And of course, this film, Message from Space, is also just filled to the gills with uh, with, with space battles, lots mm. of model spaceships, but really well done. I mean, they were Star Wars. We have to remember, nineteen seventy seven Star Wars, like like really broke through and created like a new standard for miniature based uh, space action uh, special effects. Mm-hmm. And this film does not equal that level of special effects 
but I feel like it 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 manages to reach a very comfortable level. Uh, like the, the the people who did this were not figuring out for the it, for figuring it out for the first time. So the you know the explosions, the scale model use, it looks re- really good in in, in my. Uh, in my view, maybe not the Star Wars level, but but a comfortable level a few steps below. I think there are a certain type of sci-fi space practical effects, especially using miniatures and models, that are really effective despite not looking realistic. They're effective in the same way the sets of the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari are. So you might have mm-hmm. sets in a German expressionist movie that don't look at all like reality. They are expressive. They're they're a work of art. And the special effects in these types of sci-fi movies, I think, are sort of like that. They're, you know, you're not gonna think, wow, is that a real spaceship flying through space? But they're they're beautiful nonetheless. Yeah, and and I'll and I'll say two two other things. One about just the way the set the sets are fantastic in this film. They're huge, mm-hmm. and they often feel like what if you had a Star Wars or a Flash Gordon, um, you know, space opera set, and then a, a, a disco paintball uh, bomb went off. Yes, and, and colored everything. Uh, you, you feel like you're in a kaleidoscope at times. Yes, if you throw all together. Star Wars, disco, 70s variety show, and Japanese decorative motifs all together. And it creates something that is really fabulous to look at throughout. I'll also say that all of the acting in this film is terrific. Uh, everybody <laughs> seems to be playing their character as if that character is consistently slightly too drunk. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's it's fabulous. It creates this kind of unhinged vibe. It, and and it, it also, there are plot choices that seem to work well with this, uh, with, with, with this kind of vibe because generally in a film, uh, like I, I'm, I'm trying to remember the, the exact, you know, prescribed structure. When do your characters usually get the call to adventure and when do they accept that call to adventure? Oh, well, you know, in the classic story, uh, you would say in, in Star Wars, it's the hero's journey, right? It's very Joseph mm-hmm. Campbell inspired. So I don't know. I mean, 15 minutes in, the hero gets the call to adventure and then he initially rejects it. But then there's a turning point that burns a bridge to his past. And then he has to come mm-hmm. back and accept the call the second time. Yeah. Meanwhile, message from space. Most of the film is is devoted to people uh, slowly receiving the call to adventure and then even even more slowly accepting that call. I don't think all calls to adventure have been received and accepted until like the last <laughs> 20 minutes of the film. Oh, yeah. Uh, Sonny Chiba doesn't show up until like 20 minutes until the end. I can't believe yeah. it. And the hilarious thing is, so you take an actor who's as charismatic and wonderful as Sonny Chiba, uh, mm-hmm. and you say, I think the way we should show him is like behind a bulky helmet, so you can't really see his face in a scene that's like shaded with a red gel. So, you, in fact, you can't really see anybody's face. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a really, really sad uh, just abuse of Sonny Chiba, but uh, I don't know. It, it works nonetheless. <laughs> Well, um, before we get into a more detailed discussion of who's in this um, and, and who made it, why don't we have just a little splash of the trailer audio here? From a captive planet two million light years away came a desperate plea for help. Message from space. On the verge of extinction, 
the leader of the persecuted Jalutians, sends his beautiful granddaughter to find the eight legendary brave adventurers who alone can stop the annihilation. Do you know where Emerald is? You know where Emerald is? What are you doing? No! I'm a human being from the planet Earth! Never before has the screen erupted with more spectacle, more excitement. An international cast headed by Vic Morrow. I buried my career in orbit. The Babel won. I can't do it. It's the seat again. And chosen by the gods. I don't know if it comes through in the trailer, but I was thinking the original tagline of this film was, who's shooting at who? It's it's a question that that may arise during the viewing of this film. Uh (laughs) Uh, And I I did question a number of times what the message from space actually, I guess the space nuts are the message from space. Yeah, the magic nuts are the message. Yeah. that they are the call to adventure. I mean, the, <laughs> the, the scenes where the characters are discussing and debating the call to adventure almost all involve holding up the nuts, examining them, comparing their nuts and everything like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's there's a lot of space nuts in this. All right. Well, let's let's talk about some of the, the, the people involved here. OK. So first, first of all, uh, let's talk about the director, director uh, Kinji uh, Fukusaku. Uh, this is a guy who lived 1930 through 2003, directed 63 projects during his career. And uh, some, other t- some other titles might jump out uh, to more experienced Japanese cinema fans, but I, I think the big one here is probably the, uh, the, the movie Battle Royale, which came out in the year 2000. Oh, I had no idea this was the same guy. Yeah. This was a film, it, it was kind of like a pre-Hunger Games kind of mm-hmm. Hunger Games thing, kind of a, a mashup of the ideas in Hunger Games and Lord of the Flies, in which a futuristic Japanese government captures a class of ninth grade students, ninth graders, and forces them to kill each other. <laughs> I think there's some kind of implication that this is an expression of political authoritarianism. It's like there's an evil mm-hmm. uh, fascist government, and the way that they keep the people uh pacified i guess so you keep the people from rebelling is to force one class of ninth graders to kill each other on an island yeah i'm not sure exactly how that works it seems to connect to some bread and circus ideas but uh, yeah and still not quite clear yeah i I mean it was it was a controversial film upon its release but it was highly successful one of the top 10 highest grossing films in japan i understand and just and a hit around the world it's one I, i remember watching at some point after its release, when it kind of you know made its rounds uh, over here in the United States, mm-hmm. um, but uh, yeah, it's an interesting film. And the, the the other interesting thing is he directed it at age seventy. Like this was wow, really late in his career and in his life when he he puts out this this film that I think is 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 his his greatest achievement in terms of reaching an audience and and uh, and, and probably saying something too about. Um, uh, about uh, you know the you know the, about the culture and government, um, I, I have a feeling it probably speaks more to uh, to Japanese um, film fans than it does to uh, you know Western fans, unless they're you know you know super uh, you know um, up to snuff on uh, on uh, you know stylistic choices and uh, you know the, the voice of Japanese cinema, etc. But it's I remember still finding it to be an, an interesting and disturbing film. I also noted, looking around at IMDb, that he directed the PlayStation 2 horror game um, Clock Tower 3. Do you remember this one, Joe? I never played this. I never had a PlayStation 2 when I was younger. Ah, 
Well, I, I, I had one, and I definitely played this game. It was, uh, it was a weird survival horror game. Your character doesn't even have a weapon most of the time, so it's a lot of running away from and hiding from monstrous killers. Hmm. Okay. Uh, kind of uh, Soma-like, where you're not really fighting, you're just hiding? A bit, but more, but more of a horror theme, like more of a this thing is looking for me and there were, you would like try and distract it with other things in your environment. So a bit of that, like it, mm-hmm. it definitely has connections to other survival uh, centered horror games that came out in its wake. Interesting. I mean, I wouldn't have predicted that from Message from Space, though I I don't mean to – I mean, we're going to make a lot of jokes about Message from Space. But again, I want to emphasize that it is – I do not necessarily think it is a failure. Like, it is funny and absurd in many ways, but mm-hmm. it has a really strong momentum. It, it drives forward, and the, there's real skill behind the camera in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's – it's consistently entertaining. It's hard to look away. And all the performances are wonderful in their mm-hmm. own right. Uh, so let's get to one of those performances. Oh, oh, oh question, question. Okay, what yes. if you made a Star Wars movie, but the hero of the movie was Carl from Aqua Teen Hunger Force? Because <laughs> that's yeah. what we've got here, basically. Yep, we have Vic Morrow as General Garuda. Um, which is a great name as well, but tying in a you know a, a, an Asian mythical uh, uh, creature into his his title here. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Vic Morrow. Yeah, I guess you would describe him as Carl esque. You might describe him as Rousedower esque. Yes. Or, um, oh, what's the name of the actor? Um, uh, your, your hero from uh, from Halloween Three, Season of the Witch. Oh, Tom Atkins. Yeah, he has kind of a Tom Atkins vibe as Strawberry well. Strawberry Burt Reynolds. Yeah. <laughs> so um uh, you've probably seen Vic Morrow in something. He was he was a staple of film and television for decades from a a small part in 1955's Blackboard Jungle to the tragic 1983 production of Twilight Zone the movie in which a helicopter accident claimed his life and the life of uh, a couple of child actors as well. Um but uh, but prior to that, he was involved in a lot of mainstream, often TV projects and often international projects. And, and I, I think I probably know him best from some of his appearances in international B movies. Of particular note, um, there was a – both of them directed by Enzo G. Uh, Castellari. The first is uh, 1981's The Last Shark uh, which is a Jaws ripoff, an Italian Jaws, rip, Jaws ripoff in which Moro basically plays Quint from Jaws. This is funny because it hits on the two big ones. Which movie do you think was ripped off more, Star Wars or Jaws? They're maybe the two most ripped off movies in history. Oh, maybe like add on Aliens, those three. Yeah. I feel like it's got to be Jaws because with Jaws, all you really need to do is get some – people in swimsuits at the beach or out on the water mm-hmm. and you just have that one special effect you've got to you've got to shoot for but the special effects threshold is is i feel higher with star wars <laughs> i don't know i mean there's a certain threshold with shark movies and the last shark does not appear to pass it they have a shark <laughs> puppet that does it does not look good folks it has a kind of a funny bulge in its neck that gives it an almost frog-like throat sack kind of appearance, but could also be interpreted as just a jowly old man. <laughs> yeah, and I, I also remember in this one again, it's it's very Jaws esque. Like it, it feels 
very much like a remake in, in many respects. But there are scenes where the, the, the shark is like attacking a boat and it's like an explosion. Like they clearly just set off an explosive device in a boat to show uh, what the, uh, the the shark's attack would do. Mm-hmm. There are good scenes like this in, in uh, Message from Space, too, though, with the scenes where things just blow up for no reason. You can tell something gets like hit with a sword and it blows up. Yeah. Yeah. If you like explosions, you will love <laughs> Message from Space. <laughs> Uh, but wasn't there, there was another Castellari movie? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, he directed a film titled uh, The Bronx Warriors, uh, which uh, which is fabulous. It was featured on Mystery Science Theater 3000 back in the day. It also stars one of my favorite Italian B-movie actors, George Eastman. Um, but it's uh, it's a yeah post, post-apocalyptic New York City hell movie, mm-hmm. strongly influenced by Escape from New York and The Warriors. Um, it's it's a fun one to watch because they filmed a lot of it in New York City. So if you if you have enjoyed going to New York in the past and hope to return in the future, like 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 me, or perhaps you live there, it's a fun it's a fun one to watch because they filmed some key scenes out on uh, Roosevelt Island, and you can go to Roosevelt Island today. You can take the uh, you can even take the, the the cable car over there, and you can see some of the very places they filmed, including the Renwick ruins, which look the same today essentially as they looked when they filmed the Bronx Warriors. I've never thought of this before, but somebody should put together a B-movie tour of New York. It's just yeah. all of the best uh, locations and sites from uh, the iconic B-movies we love. That would be that would be wonderful. Uh, there's so much you could cover. And, and I imagine a lot of it is, has vanished mm-hmm. at this point, but some of it's still there, like the Renwick Ruins. Uh, so anyway, Vic Morrow is in this, and he plays a mercenary enforcer named Hammer, which I think we can easily trace the DNA of that character um, to escape from New York. Um, like, it's it's clearly, uh, you know, patterned on the Lee Van Cleef character in Escape from New York. Oh, yeah, okay. Now, maybe we should uh, mention a few more of the actors. Of course, mm-hmm. we've already talked a bit about Sonny Chiba, who is a, a fabulous actor. I think a lot of American audiences might know him best for some of the later performances in his career uh, in American movies. Like he was in uh, Kill Bill Part One, playing mm-hmm. Hattori Hanzo. He's fabulous in that part. He's also got a part in uh, The Fast and the Furious 3, Tokyo Drift, which is yeah. a beautiful fantasy film. <laughs> I was going to ask you about this because I I haven't seen any of the um, uh, the Fast Furious movies, but I know uh, you were a connoisseur. I would say, and I'm not the first to observe this. Other people have uh, said the same. The best thing to do with the Fast and the Furious movies is stick to the odd numbered ones. Uh, so. <laughs> Like the first one is bad, but it has a very seductive place in history. It evokes this just like pre nine eleven, you know, new millennium kind of thing where everything was a little bit sweaty and orange and <laughs> like I don't know, we were just gonna be racing cars for the rest of eternity. Uh it's also I think it's about stealing DVD VCR combos. Okay. And then the second movie, I don't remember, it's just like a crime car movie. It doesn't have Vin Diesel in it, so it loses a lot of the appeal. Uh, Then the third one, 
decides it, it's very different. The third one suddenly becomes kind of a, an otherworldly fantasy film set in Japan. Uh, there's, it has a great villain named the drift King who has this perfect villain face. He he's wonderful. And after I saw that one for, for weeks, I was just boy crazy for the drift King. And then the fourth <laughs> one's no good. The fifth one things, then the rock shows up and things really get moving. But I would say actually of the entire series, the third one is my favorite, even though it doesn't have Vin Diesel in it. Which one is Tokyo Drift though? That's the third one. This Tokyo Drift. That's the one with Sonny Chiba. And it's centered around a scooty thing you do with a car, right? Yeah. It's, like it, what a Tuco drift is? It, it is about uh, drifting. Drifting is the major theme of the movie. And it's about how you make a car move laterally to the direction the wheels normally go in. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and so he plays a villain of some kind or a heavy or a, uh, a, he, a wise hero? He, he's like a – I think he's a mafia boss basically. Okay. Well, that, that, that makes sense. Um but Sonny Chiba, he's a wonderful actor, amazingly oh, charismatic, yeah. just a fantastic, you know, you can't take your eyes off him on screen. And it's, uh, again, I've, I feel like it's kind of sad in this movie that he doesn't show up until toward the end. And even then, he doesn't get a lot of close-ups and he's behind a lot of just equipment that's around his face. Uh, hmm. I just feel like, you know, you have Sonny Chiba on cast, you should, you should give him a little more, uh, a little more intimacy. Yeah, because because make no mistake, Sonny Chiba is slash was an international martial arts star. Mm-hmm. Uh, like he was very much a, a guy who made a huge name for himself um, uh, in in Japan, and then that um, uh, and then then was able to cross over uh, into America. Uh, like one film of note is 1974's The Street Fighter which uh, went on to become like a big grindhouse hit in the United States. It's notable for a number of reasons, mainly because it's just Sonny Chiba, uh, you know, kicking butt the whole time. But it features x-ray finishing moves uh, <laughs> where like he punches somebody and then it's um, and then it's an x-ray footage of that skull cracking, uh, which is fabulous. This is something that I think would would much later get picked up by the Mortal Kombat video games. I was going to say also that. It's used in other other uh films as well but it's it's a great special effect that's really good now one of the other performances that i would like to call out from this movie is the actress playing princess maya uh peggy yeah. lee brennan who didn't really do much else i looked her up she was in an episode of mash she was in a few mm-hmm. movies uh she didn't have a very extensive film career but she has the most joyful rambunctious penny marshall laverne chipmunk energy in this movie yeah it it might be my favorite performance in the film it's very spunky and and like all the performances it feels like the character is consistently just a little bit too drunk Mm -hmm. Uh, but but in a good way like every time she's on the screen there's this uh this kind of manic energy that 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 works really well. She like she brings an energy to the to the room or the spaceship cockpit, uh, whichever it may be. Oftentimes in this film, you have to stop and ask yourself, "Am I supposed to be in space right now?" Because <laughs> you'll feel like you're in a in like a an overly decorated uh, homeroom in a high school, yes. or or yes. you know, or some other strange location. Um, but uh, but at any rate, anytime uh, Peggy Lee Brennan is in the room, uh, it's it's going to be fun. Uh, Peggy Lee Brennan is never on the mix setting. She is always on the liquefy setting. Yeah. Now, a- another star of, no- of note, a huge star the, uh, of Japanese cinema and also a crossover star in this is uh, Hiroyuki Sonata playing Shiro the Rough Rider, one of the, the two, basically one of the two Luke Skywalkers in the film. Yes. 
Uh, he would go on to become a major Japanese star. Uh, he starred in such uh, major Western productions as The Wolverine. Uh, he's, he's in HBO's Westworld. He's in Sunshine. He's in Avengers Endgame. He is going to play Scorpion in the next Mortal Kombat movie <gasps> that they are making. And the crazy thing about him is you look up pictures of, of him and he's like, you know, super handsome Japanese actor. He is 60 years old and and does, and it looks like he's maybe 35 or something. You know, he, he, um, he this guy has to be a vampire. That's my, my only guess. He drank from the Keanu fountain. Yeah. Yeah. Like Sonata is. Uh, yeah. He's he's keeping it together. He is. He is my my new uh, aging hero. Uh, like I want to age like Sonata does. Well, I feel like maybe it's time to jump into a full breakdown of the plot to the extent that that's possible, (laughs) because this movie is, like I said, it's very fun. It's a feast for the eyes, but the plot is borderline incomprehensible. I tried to pay close attention so I could explain what's happening, uh, but it's rough. Yeah, I have. I I watched this uh, with my wife the other day. And we did a, an Amazon uh, Prime watch party mm-hmm. where we invited some folks from the Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussion module to join us. You know, whoever was available to on short notice and had the the, the necessary technologies and um, accounts to do so. So we had a handful of people in there. And consistently the question that came up was, what is happening? <laughs> what? <laughs> what? And then also just trying to keep count of how many space nuts were supposed to be um, sent out, how many had actually been received, and then how many had been accepted. So, oh, okay, okay. Well, let's I wish sort you it luck out. in breaking this down, Joe. I wish you luck. Well, you've got to come with me. I'm not going to do it alone. I'm, I'll try and help, but, uh, you know, it's, um, it's, it's more of a stream of consciousness sort of thing. Okay, okay, okay. So we're going to start at the beginning. The beginning of this film, as we've said, we open with the Princess Leia theme from Star Wars. It's just mm-hmm. playing the Star Wars music. And then you get this bone-rattling, deep-voice narration that's kind of Don LaFontaine meets James Earl Jones. It sounded so familiar to me. I was like, I know I have heard this voice before. And then you called out what it, who it might be. I'm not sure. But uh, did you look this up? Um, I, I haven't looked it up, but there's this. Um, I mean, I've looked. I've looked it up in the past, but basically, there was this cool mix that I came across several years ago that that took some audio samples from a an old uh, solar system documentary in which this very smooth, velvety voice is talking about the rings of Saturn. It sounds exactly like the same guy. So I, yeah. I really wonder if it's the same uh, narrator. But yeah. anyway. The narrator explains the situation here almost as if the opening narration could have been a text crawl that that goes across the screen. Um, And so what's covered in this narration? Well, we find out that what you're looking at at the beginning is the planet Jelusia, which I have to say does not look inhabitable. It looks like a rocky hell without an atmosphere. It reminds me of the caves of Mars in Santa Claus versus the Martians, (laughs) because you also have an old guy who's a lot like Chochum. In Santa Claus versus the Martians, you know, who in, in Santa Claus versus the Martians, he's talking about the children of Mars. They have no Santa. And in this, he's talking about all the bad stuff that the the Gavanan, the, the Gavanas are doing to them. Right. So the Gavanas are bad. They have conquered the planet Jelusia. Uh, we're told that the Gavanas are steel skinned. So we mentioned earlier, they're like stormtroopers. But instead of white armor, they've got this like metal and green armor. And well, they have silver paint on their skin. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, 
And then there is a tribe of people who wear wreaths on their heads, just like leaves. And I guess these are supposed to be the Jelusians. They're kind of space druids in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't like being conquered by the Gavanas. I think maybe the Gavanas are going to kill them eventually. I wasn't exactly clear on that, but th- they yeah. want to get rid of their Gavana problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, so their leader is a guy I think named Kido. He's also just called Grandfather. So usually yeah. he's Grandfather. This and, is the Chochum character. Yes. And the elder explains that their only hope is to throw eight magic nuts into space and these eight magic nuts are called Liabe seeds, and they will seek out heroes who can help the Jelusians fight for their freedom. And a couple of the Jelusians go out to follow the magic nuts, I guess, to figure out who they're who, who they're seeking out. And these Jelusians who who follow them are Princess Emeralita and a strong young fighter named Urako, and they fly off in a spaceship that looks like it could be like the Santa Maria. It's a wooden galleon with masts and rigging, which is a great choice. It is straight up a wooden sailing ship flying through space. It's one of the just it is one of the truly weird and wonderful choices in this movie to make one of the spaceships be a ship, be a sailing vessel. (laughs) One thing that I think is very interesting, uh, a ripoff choice that was made here was to take the Princess Leia character from Star Wars and just split her character in half into two different characters. So what are the characteristics of Leia in Star Wars? Well, she sort of has two different faces she presents to the world. One is the sort of um, sort of passive, elegant, uh, you know, white robe, headgear, um, soft-spoken. And then her other half is she's a tough, spunky fighter who sticks up for herself. Well, what they did is they just split that into two different characters. So Princess Emeralita is wearing a long white robe and she's very sedated. She, you know, seems to be on Xanax or something. And then the other half is uh, the character Maya in this movie, who is the tough, uh, spunky fighter half of Princess Leia. And I wonder what prompted that decision to just like make it two characters instead of one. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, it, I, I didn't think about this as much when I was watching it because certainly uh, the princess uh, uh, Emer, Emer, Emeralita mm-hmm. is uh, is kind of your stereotypical um, princess character. You know, and she just nothing, needs rescuing. Yeah, yeah, she just needs rescuing. She needs help, and she reacts to things going on around her, and otherwise doesn't really affect the plot all that much. While while uh, uh, while the other character, the the Maya, is going to be. Uh, you know, far more action oriented. Yeah. She's the into the garbage shoot flyboy half of Leia. Yeah. Uh, so then we meet the real bad guys, the, the Gavanas, as we've explained, great costumes, stormtroopers with horned helmets, all that stuff. Their leader, Roxaya, is uh, some kind of king. They refer to him as your majesty. We've talked about his amazing horseshoe crab helmet. It's got the legs sticking out the side. And and Darth Crabhead here is very angry that the space galleon is leaving Jelusia, and he explains. And I wrote this quote down: "I know they're going out of the universe to seek help." Whoa, they're going <laughs> they're, out of the universe. <laughs> there are a lot of moments in this film where I feel like there is either some confusion or some uh, some translation issues concerning galaxy, solar system, and universe. Yes. Um, you know, what things are are you capable of uh, of exiting and entering and which ones even make sense in a far future space opera? Yes, I think it doesn't really make sense in this movie, but somebody should make a movie about characters who go out of the universe to seek help. <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, oh, but then we haven't mentioned this character yet. After this, we, we meet the, who for me is maybe actually the absolute star of the film, the greatest of all time, Darth Crabhead's mother, who yep. is also painted silver and red. She has no teeth. She, she likes to like call about things. Darth Crabhead and mother uh, are, are essentially giving a speech about how together we will bring order to the galaxy. Yeah, it's it's a wonderful and weird choice that I can only I can only imagine is drawing upon some existing tropes in um, in Japanese storytelling and Japanese cinema. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I don't know. I like I say I'm not an expert on on, on Japanese uh, film by by any stretch, but I know we do see. I mean, you see a lot of witch like characters and wise old women and and dangerous wise old women show up in in, in stories around the world. But uh, you know, I think I think of how you often see this trope in Miyazaki films. Mm-hmm. Uh, generally, oftentimes on both sides, where you have the the, the good and the bad uh, duality represented in in old women. Uh, so uh, so I don't know this. Yeah, this 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 grandmother is is very interesting though because she she kind of has that Baba Yaga look with a big fake nose mm-hmm. glued to her face, and she has the most awesome. Um, death metal wheelchair i've ever seen yes. it seems to be made out of of bleached xenomorph bones <laughs> and is made for gladiatorial combat it's wonderful it's really good there are actually a couple of evil crones in this movie we'll, we'll get to yeah. the other one in a bit um but so okay so after all that we meet the we meet the the heroes of jelusia we meet the uh the bad guys then we cut to somewhere else i think it's some other planet it's not earth it's somewhere i don't remember the name of it uh you cut to a rich girl on a luxury spaceship and this is finally maya i don't think she's Mm. actually a princess but she's kind of a princess because she is like the heiress to a fortune she's got a very rich father who i don't think we ever meet but in a way it's kind of fitting that like she's she's a a western style princess so she's not an actual princess she just comes from from privilege and money yeah exactly uh but she she's in her luxury spaceship which is being chauffeured around through space and she looks out the window and sees space fireflies i think we're told that they're actually radioactive atomic dust that's what the (laughs) attendant says so you catch them in your hand is what you do. Right. They do that later. And then the luxury ship gets buzzed by a couple of cocky space racers that are known as Rough Riders. Uh, basically, again, these are a couple of guys from the Fast and the Furious franchise, but in space. And their names yeah. are Aaron and Shiro. Yeah. And Shiro, of course, is played by Sonata. And the other one, I looked him up. He's basically um, an American or uh, or Western actor that uh, had some other credits, but not, I, you know, clearly I didn't add him to the notes, so he didn't impress me all that much. Yeah, he didn't really stick in the mind. Uh, no offense if you're listening. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> uh, Maya, we find out, is also a rough rider at heart because she does not want to be sitting there in the chauffeured luxury spaceship. She tries to grab the wheel and, like, race around with the other two guys. Mm-hmm. As I said earlier, she she has a very – for some reason, she really reminded me of Penny Marshall from Laverne and Shirley. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, the the Rough Riders, Aaron and Shiro, end up crashing their ships while they are playing chicken with the space police. And when the two of them get out, they like jump out of their ships with fire extinguishers and start (laughs) dousing them. And they examine the hulls of their crashed ships and they find, what? There are magic nuts inside our ships? So they've each got a magic nut. Then we cut to somewhere else entirely. I don't know if this other place is supposed to be Earth or some other planet. I'm I'm not sure what it is. But uh, we meet Vic Morrow now. Now, uh, again, 
try to picture a gruff, mustachioed, hard-drinking sort of Carl from Aquatine general. Yeah, the hard-drinking is key because I feel like almost every scene he's in, he is uh, he is he's he's nursing a uh, you know a, a finger of scotch or, or, yeah. or bourbon or something. He has some sort of a dark amber liquid uh, in a glass that he has almost finished. He's general getting hammered, and he's in the middle of conducting a rocket launch that is with is we find out a funeral for a robot. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah. So his his first robot was named Beba One, and somehow this robot was destroyed. But he loves and cares for Beba One, and so he put Beba One's robot corpse into this spaceship to send it into space to become a satellite that's orbiting the planet, uh, as sort of as a Viking funeral for his dead robot. Uh, he he keeps he always pronounces it robot. <laughs> yeah, like uh, like Zoidberg does in Futurama. I yeah, uh, but then he also he gets chewed out by the high command. They're like, "What a wasteful use of a rocket to just give a funeral to a robot." <laughs> no one cares about robots. You have done wrong. But uh, this does. Actually- but he loves robots. He yes. he is a friend to robot kind, as as Beba too points out. And uh, I don't, I got the sense more than friends. I feel like like there's yeah. this is a romance. Yeah, I I agree. Uh, Beba. Too, so he's got a new robot. It's Beba two. Beba one was the one that's a satellite now. And Beba two is constantly saying like, you know, you have done done us such an honor. You've been so kind to robots. And so later, General Garuda is getting drunk in a bar. As we mentioned, he's getting drunk in every scene he's in. And he finds a magic nut in his whiskey. Mm -hmm. Now, I have to say also this bar that he's in is kind of the highlight of the movie. Imagine a really raunchy disco Mos Eisley cantina with variety show fire underneath it. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 quite a scene. It was one of I think it was the first scene. Where we were like, oh yeah, this 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 movie's got it. Like this this is, <laughs> this this one is uh, is definitely setting itself uh, apart from Star Wars. Yeah, and so they uh, Garuda and Beba two go outside, and Beba one looks up and sees something in the sky, and he says, "Look, Beba one has now become a star." <laughs> and Vic Morrow's like, "Eh, forget it, forget it, Beba two. And Beba two says, "Beba two cannot forget. No robot can forget your kindness to robot kind." Oh, it's wonderful. Uh, I have to say, first of all, Bebe Two looks amazing in this. Yes, um, in like there's certainly a the Star Wars esque in its um, design, but it's a it's it's a cool costume. It's uh, you know evidently like a, a little person wearing a a robot costume, but it looks really good. I, I I totally bought it as a robot, but then we have to say something about General Garuda's um, costuming in this because he is oh, consistently yeah. in an amazing costume. High plains drifter. <laughs> Well, yeah. Well, sometimes he's in kind of the space admiral costume, uh-huh. and then he puts on this enormous coat and hat that I, I felt like he was. It was like he was leaving to go try out for a, a role as a as a time lord. You know, it had kind of a oh. Doctor Who vibe to it. Yeah. And then later, he has this sil like unflattering silver shining costume that he ends up wearing as well but he's he's always wearing something interesting or a little too interesting oh there's one scene where he's dressed as austin powers just full yeah. austin powers it's like a oh he has you know, a neck ruffle. red velvet yes. suit with the frilly cravat <laughs> yeah uh, but but so we got to go back. We got to do it in order. So we somebody else finds a nut. You, we've got to chart all of the nut findings. This mm-hmm. this shady guy named Jack 
who I don't remember yeah. how we meet him. I guess he's friends with the two Rough Riders who are trying to earn money now to repair their ships. The shady mm-hmm. guy named Jack is also trying to get money. He's this dude who's dressed kind of like a Fredo Corleone type in a barbershop quartet hat. And he finds a nut when he bites into a tomato like an apple and it cracks a tooth on a nut inside. But it, it, the movie doesn't even stop to examine why was he biting into a tomato like an apple? Is that a thing people do? Um, I mean, it's a fruit. Go for it, you know? <laughs> uh, also, I have to say about Jack, if you're picturing any time we say anything about Jack, you have to know that when in whatever scene we're talking about, he has also mentioned at least two or three times that something is going to get them three years in space jail. One of the – so Jack, yeah, is consistently uh, – amusing um, and also semi-obnoxious character who's clearly supposed to be some sort of a criminal. And um, I I think the Fredo Corleone uh, comparison is is totally correct. But I also feel like this has to be, I am mostly sure that this is a a, a standard character trope in, in Japanese cinema because I feel like I've seen this exact character in other films um, I, he has a real loop in the third quality, uh, which is a, a, this kind of um, criminal or spy character you see pop up in a, um, an early Miyazaki film. Hmm. So I feel like this is a stock character that we have encountered in Message from Space. He brings a different level of, I don't know what you would call it. He, he mugs for the camera in a way that no other yeah. characters do. Nobody else like makes a face straight into the camera lens, but Jack does. And I kept expecting him to die <laughs> yeah. or that he would turn out to be like a minor adversary. But uh-huh. no, he's I mean, he's got a he's, he's got, got a one nut. of the space nuts. He's good he, to go. He's Rob. Were you doubting the nuts? You can't deny the nuts. He's got a nut. I, I doubted the nuts a lot during this <laughs> film because it didn't seem like they were working for the longest. <laughs> you you got to put your faith in the nuts. They're not going to find somebody who's not a hero of Jalusia. May the nut be with you. Uh, so for some reason, I can't remember why they do this, but for some reason, uh, some of the heroes go swimming in space. Like they fly their spaceships up to where the space fireflies are. And then Maya and the two Rough Riders and maybe also Jack. I don't remember who all goes, but they get out of their spaceships and then they just go swimming in space, like paddling yeah. their arms. I think not quite realizing that you can't do that in space because there's nothing to push against. I have to say, so this film does have moments where they seem to acknowledge that, yes, you're weightless in space. But there are moments where it seems like there's just universal gravity in space, Mm -hmm. which I'm kind of nostalgic for. Like, I think it was episodes of Thundercats that I watched when I was a kid where they had some scenes where space is treated like a place where there is a firm up and down. And if you're pushed out of a spaceship, you will fall. Yeah. And... I kind of want to see that explored. Like, it's completely ridiculous. It has no uh, basis in actual reality. But I kind of want to watch something now that is is clearly set in a universe that has this kind of wonky use of gravity. Yeah. Okay, so at this point in the movie, we are sort of assembling the nut heroes. Like, all the nut heroes are getting together and meeting one another. So we have Princess Emeralita and Urako, the Jalusians from the beginning. They meet up with the two space racers, Eren and Shiro, with Jack, the Fredo Corleone creep, with Maya, and with General Garuda and Beba, too. So they're all together now. Mm-hmm. 
And then there is one of the strangest parts of the movie was this weird subplot where the, the Jalusians, Urako and Emeralita and Jack, the three of them like go off into the desert to hunt for other nut bearers. And they, they think they can find somebody else who's got a magic nut. Uh, and they meet with this old crone in a hut and it turns out to be a trap because this evil crone and her son, who is just Greedo, he's Greedo from Star Wars. Uh, they try I got kind of a creature from the Black Lagoon vibe from him. Yes, um, gr- yes, Black Lagoon and Greedo. They try to kill Urako, and then they're going to force Emeralita to marry her Greedo son. She she explains he was born on the planet Pluto. No one loves him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that. Like his whole weird appearance is based on the fact. Well, he was he was born on Pluto. Okay. Uh, so, oh no, Emeralita is going to have to marry uh, the Greedo son, but then Imperial stormtroopers burst in. They just like kick through the wall and they kill Greedo and they kidnap the crone and Emeralita. And Urako is left behind. He's left for dead, but you find out he's still alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's a sequence where I would say in one of the the, the droopiest parts of the movie, where where the only one of the only parts where the uh, where it really kind of lags is suddenly we have dream sequences, multiple dream sequences for multiple yes. nut heroes. We see their dream mm-hmm. where they get killed. Like um, uh, there's some dream where Emeralita is stabbed by a, a crabhead stormtrooper and it makes a sound like a ketchup bottle squirt and uh and and we find out it's just all these the different nut heroes like maya and the rough riders hanging out in this house together and they're all having the same dream yeah though it is in the sequence i that we first see maya in a new outfit where she's dressed like luigi and i like that (laughs) Uh, but then we cut to the bad guys so roxaya remember darth crabhead and uh and his mother they have princess emeralita and the crone on their spaceship and uh, and Roxaya and Mother use a machine to mind read the crone. And then through examination of her memories, they see planet Earth and they immediately decide we must have planet Earth. We must conquer its beauty. Yes. This green planet. Yeah. They refer to. Yeah. So they fly the planet Jalusia itself through space to Earth. There's like a part where it shows the planet just kind of like uh, farting. It's like all this green gas is coming out of one side of it, mm-hmm. and that's making it fly through space. And then it reaches Earth, and they fight a big battle. Yeah, and it is a big battle. I mean, there are at least two huge space battles in this in this picture, and this is this is one of them. And it it's great. It's the, the use of scale models and explosions, uh, like actual fireworks. Except most of the time, they look pretty good. It, you don't get that sort of uh, gamma bad gamma movie effect where like an oversized flame is melting a toy truck right um yeah i, I mean I, th- I thought the space battles look look pretty good uh in this film uh but it's yeah it's a huge battle it's wonderful and of course earth loses the gavanas win uh and the earth suddenly the movie gets very weirdly like the scope changes we get this geopolitical view and everything moves very fast and we learn about Mm -hmm. is there narration i don't recall somehow we learn about there's a new sort of uh uh, uh, premier elected to govern all of earth 
And this guy, he comes to, oh, General Garuda, Vic Morrow, is now on Earth, still drinking. I think he's just like in a restaurant somewhere drinking. And this guy comes to him and he's like, Earth is on the verge of annihilation. We can't let that happen. <laughs> uh, we need your help. He, he appeals to General Garuda not to abandon his magic nut responsibility. Uh, and then meanwhile, I don't remember exactly how this happens, but some of the other nut heroes crash on a red planet that is not Mars. They say it is part of the Bernardi star system. They don't explain mm -hmm. what that is. Uh, but here they finally, in the last act of the film, meet Sonny Chiba. And the deal yeah. with Sonny Chiba is he's playing a good Gavanas guy. He, so he's the same species as the the steel-skinned guys who are conquering everything, but he's a good one. And his name is Prince Hans. He explains that he is heir to the Gavanas throne and that Roxea was my undoing. Yeah. So he has like a horn broken off on his helmet that helps signify all this. Right. Uh, so then the next, so I guess he joins and somehow we find out he's a nut hero as well. And then uh, we cut back to the bad guys. So the I think the Earthlings have like three days to negotiate terms with the Gavanas for their surrender. And the person chosen to to go up to negotiate with uh, with Darth and Mother is Vic Morrow, is General Garuda. He gets sent up. He's decked out wearing the full Austin Powers outfit. And they, for some reason, the bad guys at this point have Vegas Jack captured. Uh, and one of them insults him somehow. Like, the crabheads start laughing at Vegas Jack. And this mm -hmm. makes Vic Morrow, like, incensed, and he stands up for Jack's honor because he is an Earthling and challenges an entry-level level stormtrooper to a duel, which is one of the strangest parts of the movie. The Yeah, the uh, this duel, I do have to say this. When we're comparing this film to Star Wars, um, I think it arguably has better swordplay. Uh, than than Star Wars does than the first, uh, the first Star, Star Wars the yeah. first Star Wars film uh, from 1977 is not known for its um, its wonderful f sword play. I mean, yes, it's a very memorable lightsaber battle, but the the actual um, fight choreography is is not top notch. No, if you compare it, like y you watch the the lightsaber battles in Empire, and they're exquisite, amazing. If, yeah, if you watch the one in the original Star Wars, it's just. It's it's kind of weak by comparison. Yeah, I've seen people try to explain it, retcon it by saying, "Well, you have to realize that Obi Wan and Darth Vader at this point they were just so serious about killing each other, there was no stylistic flourish to their uh, <laughs> to their um, the the way they combated each other." But that's just that's too much of a stretch, even for me. Yeah, I I, I don't buy it. But this isn't a duel with swords. This is a duel with laser guns. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, there's, yeah, that's right. We have the, the cowboy style laser gun duel. It's later that we have a lot of sword play. Yeah. Uh, with, with Sonny, Sonny Chiba. Chiba's character. Yeah. yeah. And that's all terrific. Yeah, it's good. Uh, but of course, Vic Morrow, he wins, even though the other guy tries to dishonorably cheat and shoot Vic Morrow in the back. He misses and then, uh, and then he loses the duel. Uh, Vic Morrow shows mercy and doesn't kill the stormtrooper, but then of course Darth Crabhead uh, is is cruel himself, and he says, "I was disgraced by this coward," and he kills him. And he says, "Like," and he throws him. the yeah. gun over his head. Yeah, <laughs> and there's this wonderful scene where like the the stormtrooper behind him is like scrambling to catch it. It feels like like kind of a blooper, but they're like, "We got it. We're not reshooting that." Yeah, and then and then Roxea 
he says, as a demonstration of our power, just to like show Earth we mean business, we're going to destroy the moon. And then they yeah, do. Yeah, as a warning shot, they <laughs> blow up Earth's moon. And they'd be like, all right, tell us, tell us what's next. So uh, <laughs> that, of course, is um, is ridiculous for a number of reasons. Um, clearly, destroying the Earth's moon would be far, far more than just a mere warning shot. Yeah, I mean, that, I think Earth would basically be screwed. And I like how yeah. after this, you know, of course, the bad guys lose in the end. And it's like, oh, everything's going to be great. But the elimination of Earth's moon, uh, just the effects on the tides, like that would have disastrous effects on coastal marine ecosystems, would probably cascade out to other ecosystems. There would just be mass extinctions. But then also... Uh, I was reading an article about this uh, on on the Royal Museum's Greenwich website uh, that was addressing what might happen if there were no moon. Without a moon, it seems like the Earth's tilt on its axis as it goes around on its orbital plane might not be stabilized. So suddenly, like, you might not get seasons or the seasons wouldn't be consistent. And you just have, like, ridiculous, unpredictable levels of climate change. It would, you know, uh, absolutely decimate life on Earth. And then also, doesn't the Gavanis planet blow up in close proximity to Earth? Oh, yeah. I, we haven't even talked about, like, the fragmentation of what would happen yeah. if you blow up the moon, blow up this other planet. So I think not the most plausible part of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so eventually, through some other plot machinations, all of our heroes end up getting captured by the Gavanas, And we learn that there was a traitor among the nut heroes. And it was Urako, the Jalusian warrior from the beginning. I was so utterly shocked that it wasn't Jack. I just knew it was going to be Criminal Jack there. Uh, yeah. I, was, I even called it. I'm like, it's Jack. It's got to be Jack. But it wasn't. No, Fredo was loyal. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it was you, Urako. And, uh, but then Orocco, he, it, he, like his heart is melted when he sees the nuts again. They all like talk about mm -hmm. their nuts and hold the nuts up. And he discovers that Beba 2, the robot, has his own nut. And it seems like the fact that even a robot could have a magic nut melts Orocco's heart and it turns him back to be loyal to the nut heroes again. Yeah. So he, he makes it, he's ultimately a terrible traitor because he, he barely betrays his side, you know? Yeah. So then there's a big battle. All the heroes are trying to escape, and it comes down to a duel between Hans, played by Sonny Chiba, and the bad guy, Roxea, the Darth Crab. Uh, they have a great sword fight. Hans calls Roxea a dog that deserves to die. And it, it's kind of hard to explain what's going on with their swords. So they're not lightsabers. They're just regular metal swords. But... Whenever they stab someone with one of these metal swords, a flash of colored light shoots out. So I'm not sure exactly how these things are supposed to work. Some sort of light injection saber or something? Yeah. Uh, but of course, Hans wins. Sonny Chiba stabs Darth. He throws him out the window, uh, like literally smashes through the glass. And th I don't know if they're supposed to be in the vacuum of space or on Jalusia. I guess it's on Jalusia, but it, Jalusia doesn't look like it has an atmosphere once again. And then finally, they're escaping the planet Jalusia as it's exploding, and they see the grandfather from the beginning. Remember him? Uh, and yes. he's mm -hmm. like, Imaralita, do not weep at my death. He says, you young people, you have to find another planet. You got to go to another corner of, of the stars and find a new planet, establish a civilization where joy and peace will reign. Sounds easy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that would be the sequel, I guess. Um, but, but, I mean, also it does tie into this... Um, 
if we, you know, if we were to discuss the themes of this movie, granted, this one's a little light on, on, on thematics, <laughs> I think. But for the most part, it's saying war is bad. Peace is good. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you should you should, you know, focus on building a peaceful future. Um, yeah, I feel like the, these these vibes are, are 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 fairly obvious in this film. I think there's something about redemption, too. We see redemption of Uraco after the, the robot mm-hmm. nut melts his heart. And then we also see a redemption for Vegas Jack. Like, he's kind of a heel most of the movie. But then in the end, he comes through and he's a good guy. And he wants to be a part of building the new Jalusia. And Emeralita tells Jack, uh, the, the Fredo character, that he would be wonderful on the new Jalusia. Everybody's going to Jalusia. And it's going to be great. <laughs> And yeah. then finally, one of the the best moment at the end of the film, I thought, was that Beba 2, the robot, somehow his hand gets blown off. I don't remember how that happens. But he laments that he can't go back to Earth to get a purple heart for his wound. And then Vic Morrow's like, forget about your purple heart. There are more beautiful dreams in space. So keep your eyes on the stars. <laughs> and that, that's yeah, pretty baby. much the end. <laughs> There's never a dull moment getting there, though. You know, it's yeah. uh, you're confused at times, uh, but but you're always entertained. <laughs> Let's see. So um, we, we've discussed some of the, the themes in this film. Uh, we've discussed some of the science already about the idea of uh, of destroying Earth's moon as a warning shot and how devastating that, that would be. Yeah, that's you destroy Earth's moon. That's not the warning shot. That's you. you that's pretty it. much that's done the death it. blow. Um, let's see some other things we, we might briefly touch on. I mean, there is a, a hint of panspermia and the idea of sending out space nuts mm-hmm. to sort of grow heroes and bring them back to you. Uh, panspermia being the idea that life could originate on one planet and spread to another planet or moon or what have you uh, via um, uh, ejecta from that planet. Uh, I think there's an interesting theme that is sort of implied in the the fact that we have a lot of these people who are – and maybe not very serious. They're kind of thrill seekers, kind of screw ups who get nuts. Mm-hmm. And then when they get a nut, the, the nut causes them to mature and to accept responsibility yeah. and to become a hero. And this is a theme that you find in a lot of these like classic adventures that like having responsibility put on your shoulders causes you to, to grow up and to become uh, and to learn to sacrifice for others. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even Vic Morrow's character, uh, Garuda, you know, he's like an old, old kind of jaded character. But no, he gets the he gets the nut and it um, it reignites his passion. You know, mm-hmm. what what do you make of General Garuda's love of robots? Like, why does he treat robots like people, but nobody else does? I guess the nut heroes also they respect Beba, too. But the idea mm-hmm. is that like uh, his commanding officer is like mad at him for respecting robots. I don't know. It's it's on one hand it 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 forecasts the direction they took uh, Lando Carissian in the uh, solo movie that came out, where it's implied that he has this very close uh, relationship with this um, with this particular robot. You know? Oh, uh, I I didn't yeah. see that. I didn't get to that oh. part. Oh no! It, I mean, I, I enjoyed Solo. It's got it's got a lot of good stuff in it. Oh yeah. Uh, but one of them is the um, the Lando uh, loves robots. <laughs> a plot element, which 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 I liked, uh, but yeah, I don't know exactly why why Garuda is singular in his love of robots. Is it just because he's he's like he's worked he's served alongside robots? I don't know. He's this battle hardened, grizzled old tough, hard drinking, you know, leathery man who has a soft spot in his heart for robots. 
Yeah. Maybe maybe it's because he can't get along with people, but he needs companionship and, and a robot can sort of fill that void. The Roy the robot is the peg that fits his hole. <laughs> uh now another another uh, uh part of the plot that we might briefly discuss some science around is the idea of taking another planet and turning it into a spaceship, of moving a planet from one system to another, in this case, to conquer Earth. I think you would encounter some severe problems about this. Uh, so the idea is clearly that there's a reaction engine. It's like throwing gas off one side of the planet, like a rocket, to move the planet. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much uh, gas you'd have to throw off to like move a planet at a reasonable speed to get there within people's lifetimes and to leave the gravity of the host star seems like actually the more reasonable proposition would be to move the star. And most of the propositions I've seen over time to navigate around space like that are actually to create stellar engines, not planetary engines. Like one idea, Mm -hmm. I don't know if this is actually all that plausible, but one that's at least been proposed is something called a Shkadov thruster. And that would be something that would be built by like a Kardashev level two type civilization uh, that creates this giant mirror that you would put on one side of a star that would reflect the radiation pressure that the star puts out back at the star, thus moving it. And then, of course, if the star moves, it carries with it everything that's orbiting around it. So you could at least potentially, you know, in theory, move a whole solar system somewhere else that way. So scientifically grounded is what you're saying. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so message from space, wonderfully weird, very watchable, um, entertaining film, uh, ultimately very lighthearted. Like my uh, my son, uh, who is in third grade, he, he didn't watch all of this, but he came in for a little of it mm-hmm. and he was loving it. He was like, this is great. Look at all these spaceships. Yeah. So if you want to check out Message from Space yourself, uh, it is, as of this recording, available on Amazon Prime, at least in the United States. You can, like, stream it there. Um, you can also pick it up uh, as a very nice DVD or Blu-ray with, a, with some wonderful cover art. Uh, so there are numerous ways to watch Message from Space, to receive the Message from Space, and, uh, yeah, we, we recommend it. Mother commands you. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and wrap up this episode of Weird House Cinema right here. Obviously, we'd love to hear from everybody about this. Uh, what are your thoughts on Message from Space? Uh, do you have some additional thoughts on um, on Japanese cinema? Perhaps you're you're, you're super uh, immersed in the the realm of Japanese cinema, and you have some thoughts on some of the the, um, the things we pinpointed in this film. Do you have a favorite Star Wars ripoff? Yeah, favorite Star Star Wars ripoff, favorite Sony Chiba uh, film. We'd love to to hear your thoughts on on any and all of it, and and also you know if there are weird films out there you'd like us to uh, to consider in the future, uh, let us know about that. Like I say, we we try and keep the idea of weird film kind of broad. You know, like it's not necessarily we're not necessarily talking about bad films or good films, cheap films or expensive films. You know, art films or just you know pure uh, popcorn fodder. Uh, we try and cast the net wide and see what kind of strange things uh, show up when we drag that net back in. So join us next week to talk about Forrest Gump. <laughs> no. no. Yeah, For, Forrest Gump is a, is a great example of the, the sort of film we'll, we'll, we'll never cover. That is the anti-Weird uh, House. <laughs> yeah, that is the, that's the normal house uh, cinema <laughs> pick of the week right there. Uh, Weird House Cinema is going to continue to come out on Fridays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind feed. Tuesdays and Thursdays will remain core episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. So, you know, science and culture focused with maybe a little weird film thrown in there from time to time. Uh, but it won't be the driving force. 
if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind or Weird House Cinema, head on over to the Stuff to Blow Your Mind feed. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, wherever that happens to be. We just have to ask that you rate, review, and subscribe. If you go to stufftoblowyourmind.com, that will take you to the iHeart listing for our show. And if you click on store on that page, you'll go to our t-shirt store where we have uh, several different designs, you know, our logo or some monsters. There's a really cool new one that was put together by, by a listener that has this Pandora theme going on. So it's Pandora opening her box and out of it all of these uh, strange and challenging ideas are emerging as well as some mythological motifs. Uh, that's a real fun one. Uh, I recommend you check it out. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 